Celebrate Good Times. <laughs> I chose the title of this platform a while ago. Even then, though, I knew we wouldn't be completely in the midst of good times right now. Hence the description that went with that title asking how we celebrate even when things are hard. Well, things are hard. They are really, really hard. In the last two weeks, many of us have experienced heartbreak and outrage over the non-indictment of the police officers who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner in Staten Island, New York. Some of us have been confused over those events, wanting to know and learn more. Some of us have been unsurprised, others devastated to discover racism deeply ingrained in our criminal justice system. Some of us have been marching the streets, demanding justice and shouting that black lives matter. Some of us are unsure how to react, wanting a fair process for all, yet concerned over what feels like a disorderly response. This room, this community, is big enough to hold many reactions. We are big enough to disagree with each other on fine points and on broad ones. And I want you to know that wherever you are on this issue and this movement, that I want to be in relationship with you around it. Because I think this is one of the keenest issues of our time. I think the response we are seeing in Ferguson and in New York and on the streets of D.C. and in every major city and many small towns across America, that this is a cry from the heart, a cry from black Americans and white Americans, from all Americans who are looking around at our different experiences of the world and saying, Something is very wrong here. Something is very wrong. When the ACLU chapter in D.C. found in a comprehensive study that almost all drug arrests in D.C., mostly only for possession, were made east of 16th Street, as though no one west of 16th Street smokes pot. (laughs) FYI. Self-reporting indicates that usage is equivalent. Something is very wrong when people of color regularly share that they are harassed by police, that they cannot enter a store without being tailed by security, that their very lives are an act of constant accommodation to a supremacist white culture. Something is wrong when America has the highest incarceration rate in the world, overwhelmingly people of color. And something is very, very wrong when every 28 hours a black person is killed by law enforcement vigilantes acting as law enforcement or security officers. Something is wrong. 
there are conversations to be had about where exactly things are wrong and what will fix it within the law enforcement system, whether it is body cameras or citizen review boards or demilitarization of police or all of those things. There is real work to do on that nationally and locally. Some of that work has already begun in D.C. with council hearings on police tactics and citizens speaking out against jump-out cars and other aggressive practices, which are in D.C. used almost exclusively in black communities. As you know, Wes has been working with family and friends of incarcerated people and the Washington Interfaith Network and other organizations that address that whole school-to-prison pipeline, from how youth in trouble are treated to how citizens returning from prison are treated, to how immigration detention centers are run, and everything in between. And I fervently hope that our work in those arenas will continue and increase and ask you to tell me if you'd like to be part of it. But something is wrong, even beyond these policies and tactics, beyond the criminal justice system. Because what those tactics communicate, what the incarceration rate communicates, what the regular steady lack of indictments communicates, what the shooting deaths of 12-year-olds for playing with toy guns communicates, is that black lives, black bodies, do not matter that our society doesn't see them as fully human in quite the same way. You can argue about what people intend. I'm telling you that I think this is how it feels. I have had enough conversations with people of color in the last few weeks and over many months and years to know in my heart that this is so. Those conversations mean that I can stand here as a white woman and tell you that there are two Americas, or more likely, many Americas, and that I only see one of them. Mine's pretty comfortable most of the time. But there's another, an America that says in a hundred different ways to our people of color that they do not matter in the same way that I do. And that is not okay. It's not okay with me because I am human and because I am a humanist. Ethical culture tells us that the inherent worth of every person is inviolable, that every person has it, that every person matters. That's what it means, inherent worth, you know. Every person matters. And so when we see that someone doesn't seem to matter to society, our job as humanists, as ethical culturists, is to show up and insist that they do matter. The system we have, it harms me as a person to be in it. It's a system because it's a system that dehumanizes others, that builds up divisions between us, divisions that are lies that tear apart at the true fabric of the human family. The system dehumanizes police, too, I think. I've been working so hard during this time, struggling with how we respond to police with compassion, how we see the humanity there as well. My family has a number of police officers in it, people I love dearly 
who think differently about this issue that I do. The system serves to divide us as well. I want to speak briefly about what it means for white people to be engaged in these issues and how we can do that. I was on a showing up for racial justice call. That's an organization that was created to unite white people wanting to support black folks uh, after President Obama's uh, first inauguration when there was an uptick in racial violence and um, kind of overt racism seen within the country. And I heard some key messages in that call that I want to share with you, knowing that this is a majority white community. Maurice Moe Mitchell was one of the folks on that call. He is a black activist working primarily in Ferguson and New York. And here is what he said. This is a tipping point, he told us, and we need every single person. He called on white people to join us on the street, challenge yourselves. Our lives are literally in danger, and to show solidarity, we need you to take risks to feel strange, to sit with that strangeness, sit with that uncomfortability, and act. He said something else I particularly liked. He said that one of the hallmarks of this movement is redistributing discomfort. Redistributing discomfort. The discomfort isn't new. It's who's feeling it that's different. And then from one of the white leaders in that movement in Surge showing up for racial justice, Dara Silverman, I was taken by what she said. Our own humanity, she said, speaking to other white people, is caught up in this white supremacist system, and we don't get to be whole while we're caught in the system. Another leader, a white woman, said, it is our mutual self-interest to get rid of repressive and oppressive systems we're living under. My takeaway from this call is that this is a time when it's important for white people to listen to people of color, to believe their stories and their voices, and then to show up and act in solidarity because this is not a black person's issue. It is a person's issue, this system and this society. Another thing I heard on that call was what white people can do to help other white people to build community with each other, to support each other in understanding race and racism, meeting each other where we are to be a community that calls people into the conversation instead of calling them out. And that's one of my hopes for us as a community, that those of us who are white will call each other in, that those of us who are struggling with these ideas, who find it hard to understand or believe, will ask questions, that those of us who feel certain about them We'll ask questions, too. We'll look forward to the conversations with each other. That we, as a community, can practice our emphasis on relationships. And we'll start today, actually, with a conversation after platform right here on the stage. You can come in and out as you're at the bazaar. 
and we'll go from there. So, celebration. (laughs) It's still the theme, you know. And I think it should be, actually. I know we have breaking hearts, some of us. I do. And I know that the disconnect between that breaking and this twinkly, sparkly season can be hard. It started for me on Thanksgiving Day when my Facebook feed was half and half. Posts about Ferguson and pictures of people's apple pie they had just baked. Usually they were from the same people, actually. (laughs) This morning... I'm speaking to you about racism, about what some are calling the black liberation movement of our time, about heartbreak and about commitment. And this afternoon, I will wind lights around my family's Christmas tree. I will pull out glass ornaments that I have collected over years, ornaments that remind me of my family and my life and the world, and that I place carefully because they could break. They're so delicate into the hands of my children. And isn't that what we do with justice work, too? Place the world so fragile into the hands of our children. We need to integrate, I think, these two parts of our lives. They're not out of place. They're on our Facebook feed or in our day-to-day, or our week-to-week. They are one and the same, the justice and the glass ornaments, part of what it means to be fully human, part of what it means to sustain ourselves and our society. Celebration, at its heart, is about connecting us to each other. You know, my very favorite thing about the holiday season in December is lights that people put in their houses that are facing out toward the sidewalk, you know. You always put your Christmas tree in the window, right? You put your menorah in the window. You put your lights around the door and your big blow-up Santa snow globe thing that is sort of weird and looks like maybe Santa's caught inside a cage, but that's okay. You put it on your lawn. It's there to make the world more beautiful for other people, not just your own family. I think about the neighbors in our story this morning, bringing joy to each other in difficult times. This is celebration. It's a reminder to each other that the world sparkles. Celebration, real celebration, isn't trivial. Marsha Ford, who's been coming to Wes for a while now, wrote to me talking about the difference between partying and true celebrating. Celebrating, she wrote, isn't just about rejoicing over something good. I think it's also about the desire to manifest or continue the manifestation of the good or happiness that is possible. It's a bit like rain dancing, I suppose. I loved that. It's about the desire to manifest the good. I think about our peace spiral during winter festival 
when we dance our hope for peace into momentary being, looking into each other's eyes and seeing, as my colleague Kathleen McTeague says, communion there. Celebration in its deepest, richest sense is about being and becoming a we, a people. There is cause, I think, for great hope right now. Great hope that we are tiptoeing closer and closer on that journey toward we. Marsha wrote again, Marsha herself is African-American, and she, write, she wrote to me, black people, ones I know anyway, are angry right now, and justifiably so, I'd say. The distrust we've had over the police is out there, visible beyond black inhabited streets and houses. It's no longer the secret that can be covered and denied. And I think, she went on, I think the hope and cause for celebration is not only this point, but the hope and happiness at the idea that just maybe it won't be so easy to hide it away again. You know, the pain that many of us are feeling, and especially the pain that white folks are feeling right now, it's pain that's existed for a long time. The truth is there's nothing really new about the news cycle we've been watching. People of color have known about this pain for a while now, for centuries, especially those in poor communities living segregated and ghettoized. What Ferguson and the Black Lives Matter movement with the sadness and confusion around the non-indictment in the Mike Brown case and the horror of the non-indictment in the Eric Garner case in Staten Island, what it has done is to give the rest of us a window into that pain. A friend of mine who has been studying race for 20 years, trying in that time to convince white people that racism still exists, That friend feels hopeful right now. Hopeful because we are all feeling pain. The hallmark of this movement is redistribution of discomfort. I heard one young black woman earlier this week express her joy. That's the word that she used her joy at seeing the protesters in the streets of D.C. stopping traffic and nonviolently but disruptively shouting out their worth. The reallocation of discomfort. Although discomfort, pain is by its very nature unpleasant, the prospect of sharing it in a way that we have not done before, to me that is intensely hopeful. It is intensely connecting. One of the things that most breaks my heart about racism is the way it makes us believe we are not one together. A shared and true understanding of racism and work against racism, as well as all the other isms, 
classism, which in America is so bound up with racism in a complicated way, patriarchy and homophobia, transphobia, anything that puts forward the supremacy of one kind of people over others and that works in the system to create a power dynamic that is unhealthy. Understanding those forces and working against them is the way that our society, our people, will be truly united one day. We'll see our shared humanity in the deepest way. This isn't color blindness. It's not an erasing of our different experiences in the world, but true solidarity, a coming together of all people to create a world that honors each of us. And boy, to get a chance to stand even a little bit in that moment and that possibility, that fills me with a sense of celebration I can hardly name. There is a moment, I think. You know, there are all kinds of conversations to be had about individual cases. There always are, and they're always complicated, right? Because life is. What I see is a match that has been ignited, and whatever it is that lit it, it was time for the spark to go off. That's what I see in this movement, a moment when an ongoing crisis has come into our awareness. But, and here's the thing, and the reason we can't give up celebration, we need it to sustain us for the long haul. Because this is long work. It's not a cause du jour. It's not just this moment. I met on Friday with a Washington Interfaith Network, Interfaith Network organizer who is inspired by the movement in the streets now, but who is eager for what she calls the real work to begin, the long work. She is eager for the broad-based community organizing that Wynne does to continue. She's eager for the conversations with police and the neighborhood gatherings and the D.C. council hearings and the meetings and the legislation. She's eager for those to continue and to grow. We are in a moment now, but it's a moment in a journey. You know, the Montgomery bus boycott, which started just a few days ago, 50 years ago, there was that celebration. That was a moment, too, a moment that lasted 13 months, 13 months of walking. But still, it was only a moment on a journey, a journey we are still on. And to have strength for that journey, we need to be a people that continues to celebrate together. Anger and rage are difficult to sustain, especially if you yourself sit in a place of privilege, a place where the reality of what you are angry about doesn't confront you every day. And so although that rage doesn't need to go away, nor does the grief, we do need to find also what is deeper, what exists beneath it. We need to find our center, and like all people around the world and over millennia, that center, the grounding of our being, is found in community, in rituals that we create together, in meaning that we make together. 
David Eaton was the minister of All Souls right down the street, the Unitarian Universalist Congregation. In the 70s, he was the first African-American senior minister of a Unitarian Universalist Congregation. And he said this about congregational life, about the community. It is, he wrote, that institution whose primary purpose is to help people discover, create, and maintain hope in their lives. When people have no hope, they discover hope together. And when they cannot discover hope, they create hope together. Next weekend, we have an opportunity to be a community of celebration, of hope, and of justice, all in 24 hours. (laughs) There's a march being organized here in D.C., a national march organized by the, um, oh, by NAN, the National Action Network. It'll start at 10.30 in the morning. And the night before, Friday evening, there's a vigil on 16th Street. The hope is that faith communities will gather here on 16th Street and light the way from the Maryland line to the White House with candles, standing in solidarity and in hope for a different way. And I want to invite you to be part of both of those actions, Friday evening and Saturday morning. And then... And this is just as important. I invite you to come here Saturday evening for our winter festival to dance the peace spiral into momentary being, to watch as our children light candles of hope as they do every year. I want to invite you, too, to that continuing conversation after platform right here Because hope is there, too. Hope is in our openness as a majority white community just to talk about this in a way that is honest and real, to share our fears and our questions and our confusion and our disagreements, to call each other in to deeper community together. When people have no hope, They discover hope together, and when they cannot discover hope, they create hope together. I invite each and every one of you, remind me of the hope. Discover it with me. Create it together.